Hey, if you got a Bible, let's go to the book of Philippians. And uh, this morning is going to kind of just be a one-off um, as we finished up the Ten Commandments a couple weeks ago, followed by our Korean celebration Sunday last week. Uh, Butler coming next week, and then Easter Sunday, two weeks from today. So uh, today is just going to be kind of a, a unique, special uh, time to dig in to the fact that it has been one year this week uh, since I stepped into the role of lead pastor here at Antioch. So thank you. And uh, if you'll remember, if you were around last year, I spent the month of March in John Lemke's tool shed with a wood stove and a pot of coffee and a Bible and a stack of books. And uh, it was a time of seeking God's heart and God's mind and God's vision for the next season of life and mission at Antioch. And uh, if you'll remember, for me, it was personally a time that ended up being what uh, Celtic Christians often refer to as a thin place, a place where the veil between heaven and earth is especially uh, thin. And I came away so personally refreshed in my faith and in my love for Christ, um, and at the same time with this great sense of clarity and passion and purpose around the things that we believe God has been calling us to uh, as a church. And so it's been a year now of pursuing this vision together. And uh, although we're never going to get to a place where it's done, where the work is done, um, it has been a year um, marked by the grace of God and by growth and by new life and fresh passion and vision in our church. And so we want to celebrate that this morning and also take the opportunity to revisit the mission and the vision that God has given us as a church uh, as a reminder and a refresher for all of us that have been part of this for a while and also also as an introduction for all of you that have come within the last year and are still trying to figure out uh, what Antioch is all about. And so this morning uh, will be something of a Vision Sunday, where we recenter ourselves on the vision that God has given us as a church. And so in Philippians, um, if you go to the very first verse of the book, Philippians 1.1, Paul introduces himself and Timothy as the authors of the letter and uh, identifies themselves as servants of Christ. And then he says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. And so we'll just pause there for a moment, but as Paul is addressing this letter to a community of Christ followers located within the city of Philippi, he creates a little bit of an interesting uh, dynamic by referring to them first as those who are in Christ and second as those who are in Philippi. It's the reality that as followers of Jesus, we live in two places at the same time. First, that we are in Christ, those united with him, those adopted by his father, empowered by his spirit, and included in his family forever. We are in Christ. And secondly, these particular Christians were in a place called Philippi. So they were in Jesus, but also in their city which really sets the tone for the rest of the letter. Paul writes to them as people who occupy places in two worlds or two realities at the same time. 
And so um, here's what you need to know about the city of Philippi. It was actually a colony of Rome. The Roman Empire, uh, as we know, was not the first empire to conquer the known world. But what made Rome's empire so special and historic was its ability to keep the world under its control, not just for a year or two or five, but for hundreds of years. The Roman Empire ruled the world. And so the genius of this empire, if you will, it was that it was built on a network of colonies. And a colony was more than a city. A colony was essentially a microcosm of Rome itself. So by law, if you were uh, in a Roman citizen in a colony, like a place like Philippi or Alexandria or something like that, if you were on, Ro- you were on Roman soil, even though you were far from Rome itself, if you were in a Roman colony as a Roman citizen, you were on Roman soil. And so that means you were exempt from all the laws of the host land or host nation. If you were in a Roman colony in Greece or in Egypt, you were exempt from uh, the taxes that would have been normal for the rest of the citizens. And essentially, you would just be treated much better than everyone else. And so a colony's job, like a colony like Philippi, was to, if you will, Romanize the city and the culture in which it was located. Or in other words, their job as a colony was to bring the rule and the reign of Rome to various strategic places around the world. And so Rome planted these colonies very strategically and then colonized or populated these colonies with Roman citizens. And their hope was to bring the rule and reign of Rome, the rule and reign of Caesar, the rule and reign of the culture, of the law, of the values, of the philosophy, the government, the education systems, and that sort of thing. The colony's job was to Romanize their city. Okay, flip with me a couple chapters over to uh, chapter 3. And we'll just read a few verses from Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 17, where Paul then, again, is writing to a group of Christ followers who are in Christ, but also in this Roman colony called Philippi. He says, join together in following my examples, brothers and sisters, and and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, and their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. So here's what Paul is doing, and it's easy for us to miss how powerful and subversive and even controversial these statements would be if we focus in even just on verse 20, where Paul says that our citizenship is in heaven. He means that in a way that directly confronts how they would have identified themselves as citizens of this Roman colony in Philippi. He's saying that if you are in Christ, even though you may be located in Philippi, your primary citizenship is not to Rome or not to Caesar, but it is to Christ 
and to his kingdom. And this would have created a tension within these early Roman Christ followers because many of them were veterans. Many of them were patriots. They had served in the Roman military and therefore the Roman Empire had taken care of them, relocated them to these colonies where they were given land, where they were protected by the emperor of Rome and they were very loyal to Rome. And even the way that they would talk to and interact with the figure of Caesar is that Caesar was Lord. That Caesar was Lord. And Paul shows up and says... For those who are in Christ, wherever it is that you live, whatever city or region or country that you occupy, your primary citizenship is not to that place, but it's to Jesus and to his kingdom. You can either continue to claim that Caesar is Lord, or you can confess that Jesus is Lord, but you can't have it both ways. And so for Paul to make this simple statement that our citizenship is in heaven was to present his hearers with a choice. Say, who are you going to serve? Where are you going to pledge your allegiance? To Caesar and Rome or to Christ and to the kingdom of heaven? You're going to need to choose. Another way to translate this idea that our, collectively, the plural citizenship is in heaven, is essentially that the church, Paul says, is called by God to operate as a colony of heaven on earth. So now that we understand a little bit about how colonies worked in the Roman Empire, Paul sort of borrows that paradigm or that picture and says, in the same way that places like Philippi are colonies of Rome, The church, the gathering of God's people is called to be a colony of heaven on earth in the same way that colonies like Philippi were called to Romanize their their city and surrounding region and nations, so the church is called to, if you will, heavenize the city and region and nation which hosts us. In the same way that the Roman colonies were intended to bring the rule and the reign of Caesar to their location, the church is invited to announce the rule and the reign of Jesus as Lord over all creation. So Roman colonies Romanize the world. Jesus colonies heavenize the world. Now, There's a way, well, let me come back to that. Um, A couple weeks ago, if you'll remember, I got the flu pretty bad for a few weeks. And typically, um, I lean towards kind of dark and artsy film and media, but I was feeling so badly, I just needed something lighthearted. So I watched like a ton of Disney movies and romantic comedies and family (laughs) movies and stuff, which is really weird now, but at the time it made sense. But I ended up watching several documentaries on the story of Disney, and I thought was really fascinating. But there was one story in particular um, that jumps out at me, and the first is that in 1966, uh, Walt Disney unveiled his vision for a new project called Epcot. And he did it in this 30-minute TV special, and he described this plan to take this barren plot of land outside Orlando, Florida, and create a new city from scratch. 
And so his dream was sort of to create this utopian city from the future that would be marked by innovative technologies and systems that could serve as an impetus for social and <clears throat> economic progress in the world. So originally, Epcot, um, for those of you who've been to Disney World, wasn't intended to be a theme park. It was actually going to be a real city. And um, it was supposed to be this place, and Disney was preparing to invest millions of dollars into this futuristic utopia. And then sadly, two months after that special aired, Disney passes away, and the dream of Epcot City uh, died with him. Eventually, they built the theme park, as we know, but it looks nothing like what he originally had in mind. Now, this may seem strange, but I actually want to show you a two-minute clip of Walt Disney's original pitch for Epcot. And the analogy, of course, will break down at several points, but I actually think that what Disney had in mind for Epcot is surprisingly similar to what Paul had in mind for the church. Not in the sense that it would be a high-tech utopia, but in the sense that the church would live as a community from the future living in the presence. So let's let Walt show us what it's about. The most exciting... The far, the most important part of our Florida project, in fact, the heart of everything we'll be doing in Disney World, will be our experimental prototype city of tomorrow. We call it Epcot, spelled E-P-C-O-T, Experimental Prototype Community of Tomorrow. Here it is in larger scale. Epcot will take its cue from the new ideas and new technologies that are now emerging from the creative centers of American industry. It will be a community of tomorrow that will never be completed, but will always be introducing and testing and demonstrating new materials and new systems. And Epcot will always be a showcase to the world for the ingenuity and imagination of American free enterprise. I don't believe there's a challenge anywhere in the world that's more important to people everywhere than finding solutions to the problems of our cities. But where do we begin? How do we start answering this great challenge? Well, we're convinced we must start with the public need. And the need is not just for curing the old ills of old cities. We think the need is for starting from scratch on virgin land, and building a special kind of new community. So that's what Epcot is, an experimental prototype community that will always be in a state of becoming. It will never cease to be a living blueprint of the future, where people actually live a life they can't find anywhere else in the world. So Eric, I'm excited to announce this is what we're doing. We're gonna buy a plot of land in Eastern Oregon we get matching orange jumpsuits and uh, <laughs> didn't go so well, huh? Um, obviously, like I said, the metaphor breaks down, but I just pulled a couple quotes from this vision that he has. Epcot, first of all, an experimental prototype community of tomorrow, a showcase to the world, always in the state of becoming, a living blueprint of the future where people live a life that they can't find anywhere else. Now, all this, uh, of course, to make this connection, we have to reimagine uh, the future. We have to reimagine the values of the kingdom. But this really is 
surprisingly similar to what Paul was trying to impart to his uh, congregation in Philippi. That yes, you are located here in the present, here in this city, but your true home is this future kingdom that's breaking in. So in verse 20, he goes on to say, we eagerly await a savior from there. A savior from where? A savior from heaven a savior from heaven who's going to bring the fullness of heaven to earth with him one day. So here's what's important to know, that for followers of Jesus, we live as citizens of this future coming kingdom that has already come but is still coming in Christ, that our true home is in heaven. Now, that is a phrase or an idea that is commonly misinterpreted by Western evangelicals to give us an excuse to say this world doesn't really matter, this life doesn't really matter, my body doesn't really matter, the poverty and brokenness and pollution of the world doesn't really matter because this isn't my home, it's all going to burn, and one day we're all going to fly away to a place called heaven. And that has nothing to do with what Paul had in mind and has nothing to do with actually this long story of the vision of God's kingdom breaking into earth. And so if you were a first century Roman citizen living in the colony of Philippi, your goal wasn't to get out of Philippi and go back to Rome. Your job was to bring Rome to Philippi. And in the same way, for followers of Jesus, our goal isn't to escape earth and go away to heaven when I die. It's to join with Jesus in the bringing of heaven to earth. And so we don't believe that we have the power that any human person or organization or religious institution in the world has the power to heavenize the world in this age. And in fact, there have been various attempts throughout history to create a perfect world, and they're disasters, right? So we don't pretend that we're going to be able to build this utopia or something like that. It's not something any human can accomplish, but we eagerly, along with the Philippian Christians, we eagerly await a savior from heaven. The story is leading towards Christ coming from heaven to earth and dragging all of heaven along with him. And so what's important for us to remember, though, is that even though we serve as a colony of heaven on earth and we are hoping to heavenize our world, there's a huge difference in the way the kingdom of heaven and the kingdoms of this world operate. We don't operate like the colonies of the world. In fact, obviously, if you know anything about the history of our world, European colonialization of African and Asian and Latin American countries, you wouldn't exactly say that was good news for those that were colonized. And so don't get caught up in the word that way. But here's the difference. The way we go out into the world as a colony of heaven isn't the way of empire, It's the way of Jesus, and the way of Jesus looks radically different than the way of Caesar. We don't go out and try to change the world through force, through coercion, through uh, power, and definitely not through violence, but we go out in the way of love, the way of the cross, self-sacrifice, humility, a co-suffering and compassionate love. 
Brian Zahn says it this way, that Jesus doesn't call his followers to change the world directly, for that would tempt us to covet Caesar's sword of coercive power. Rather, we are called to change the world indirectly by being the world already changed by Christ and attracting others to join us. So unfortunately, Christians have a long track record of trying to change the world in the name of Jesus, but doing it in the way of Caesar, which has been so destructive. But that's not what it was ever supposed to look like because we are a colony of heaven. We, as the church, as followers of Jesus, are people who live in two places at the same time. Yes, we live in Bend. Our address is in Central Oregon. But our citizenship is to Christ and his kingdom before it is to anything or anyone else. And in that sense, we are invited to occupy this world as visitors from the future, as an experimental prototype community of tomorrow, displaying for the world what it looks like to live in right relationship with God, ourselves, each other, and the rest of creation. And just like Disney said, it's never going to be a finished project. We'll always be in a state of becoming. But the hope and the dream is that as those in Christ, we could display to the world a life that would be impossible anywhere else. And so for us, as one expression of Christ's church out of millions throughout history and throughout the world today, we have summarized this vision, this announcement of the good news of Christ and his coming kingdom with this phrase from the passage Mandel read to us earlier, the reconciliation of all things. And it was about a year ago that we, uh, or a year and a half ago, that God led us as a church to reorient our entire vision and mission around this promise. This isn't something we're going to do. This is something that God has declared that he's going to do, and he's already begun it in Christ. Reconciliation means the holistic repair of severed relationships, all the ways that our world is torn apart by sin, all the relationships that have been damaged by evil and selfishness and, and, and greed. Jesus is saying that I am making all things new, and one day this world is going to be restored again to the place it was always meant to be. And so, again, from Colossians 1, just so you know, this is an original language. It's far from it. That God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ and through him to reconcile to himself all things. This is the Bible's language about what God is up to in the world. He's not just about saving souls so that we can go to heaven when we die. He's about restoring everything that's broken in creation, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And so uh, just to try to quantify this a little bit, I put together a quick graphic. Things that God is reconciling in Christ, all things, right? <laughs> Which is very good news. <laughs> 
And so our way uh, over the last year or so of trying to unpack all things, because that's a lot, uh, is to say there's these key relationships that have been damaged by the fall that God is wanting to holistically repair. So we took the Jewish concept of, concept of shalom, which is God, self, others, and creation, and we broke it down just a little bit more. So there's these six key relationships that, have been dis- that were severed or damaged by the fall, but God is on a mission to restore. Our relationship with God, our relationship with ourselves, our relationship with one another in the church, our relationship with our city, our relationship with the world or the other nations, and our relationship with the rest of creation, the non-human parts of creation. And so this is uh, essentially what becomes a paradigm for us of our philosophy of ministry as well as the kind of disciples that we are hoping to see made here. And so again, vision isn't something we can do. Vision is what God is doing. And then our mission in response is what do we sense God's asking us to do? What's our part to play? And so in 2 Corinthians chapter Chapter 5, Paul again uses this language of reconciliation. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here, and all this is from God who reconciled us to himself or to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that was God reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. And so this vision of the reconciliation of all things causes us, what Paul's saying is that we are both the recipients of this reconciliation and invited to be participants in it. We are invited by God to be reconciled to him and to ourselves and to one another and then commissioned by God to be agents or ministers of reconciliation within our city and within the world and the rest of creation. And so we articulated then our vision with this sentence to partner with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the formation of disciples who are being restored to God, ourselves, and one another and joining God in his mission in our city, around the world, and rest of creation. For us, this is what we feel God has called us to as a church that everything we do uh, in Sundays, in midweek stuff, in youth, in kids, in what we would call local and global missions, all of it is designed to serve, to help form us into these kinds of disciples that are pursuing this invitation and this commission of the reconciliation of all things, including us. And so what does that look like? These are kind of vague concepts, but we've then uh, said for each of these severed relationships, there would be a set of practices that our way of living as a showcase to the world of the coming reign of God isn't primarily through like big events and programs, although we do some of that, but we believe that we are the church. We are the embodiment of this gospel. And so that the lives we live on a daily basis in community with one another under the lordship of Christ would actually be this demonstration of those whose true home and true citizenship is under the kingdom of God. And so we, uh, we have adopted what you might call a practice-based paradigm for discipleship. 
instead of discipleship primarily being a bunch of doctrines or verses that we know, although there's nothing wrong with that, we believe Jesus calls us to actually follow him and conform our lives to, to him. And so practices means we seek to follow Jesus and join his mission of reconciliation. We are devoted to a set of biblical practices that turn our lives both towards the grace of God and towards the world, of lo- the world he loves. And so when we say practicing our discipleship, we're not talking about earning God's grace or favor or love or anything like that, we're saying, how do we respond to this gospel that's renewing us and renewing the world? And so for each of these six severed relationships, we have a corresponding practice that we would identify and say, what would it look like to live uh, as those in pursuit of reconciliation? The practices of communion, formation, hospitality, or community hospitality, justice, and Sabbath. So let's walk through these Real quickly, first of all, communion is those called to reconciliation with God. We are moving from distraction to presence through the practice of abiding in Christ. Next one, formation. As those who are called to reconciliation with ourselves, we're moved from ignorance to awareness through the practice of becoming who we are. Thirdly, community. As those called to reconciliation within the church were moved from convenience to commitment through the practice of sharing life as a family. Fourthly, hospitality. As those called to reconciliation in our city were moved from fear to generosity through the practice of being a neighbor. Fifthly, justice. As those called to reconciliation in the world were moved from apathy to compassion through the practice of remembering the poor. And finally, Sabbath. As those called to reconciliation with the rest of creation were moved from worry to rest through the practice of celebrating the good. And so that our hope is that over the days, weeks, months, and years that we are on this journey together, that these uh, practices will begin to shape our lives, that they will begin to inform our discipleship, and that our discipleship wouldn't just be about me and Jesus, or just about me and my church, but it, would, but it would cover all of life and all of these relationships that God is wanting to bring restoration and renewal to. And so uh, the final piece that I'll give you is that uh, for, for us, Sundays is the central gathering of our community. It's not church. Church is who we are, not where we go. But it, this is the primary gathering point for us as this expression of Christ's church here in Bend. And so we have, uh, over the last year, as you've noticed, overhauled Sunday morning significantly. And it's for the sake of being faithful to pursuing this mission mission and vision. And so for each one of these relationships and practices then, there's been a value that has started to shape our gatherings here. And so finally, we have these gatherings, that the gathering uh, principle that would be when we gather here on Sunday, it's sacramental, liturgical, familial, hospitable, missional, and joyful. And let me run through those with real quick because they're still weird words to many of us. 
And so sacramental, as those who are called to reconciliation with God, we gather with the hopeful expectation of life-changing encounter with the living God. We come not to be entertained, but to offer our worship to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with grateful joy and reverent awe. We gather to stand in the presence of God, surrender to the work of the Spirit, and receive the grace of Jesus through the ministry of the Word, the sacraments of bread and wine, and the water of baptism. When we come here on Sundays, we're not just coming to church, we're coming to Jesus. And we come with the hopeful expectation of meeting him here. Secondly, liturgical. As those called to reconciliation with ourselves, we gather with the historic Christian church, retelling the story of redemption in the seasons of the church here. Our worship is the work of the people, not paid professionals. Believing there is no formation without repetition, we give ourselves to the identity-forming rhythms of scripture and song, confession and creed, prayer and proclamation as we seek to be conformed to the image of Christ. And so for us, worship isn't primarily about self-expression, it's about spiritual formation. And so we carefully choose the songs, prayers, and creeds that we say and bring together for the sake of hoping that our hearts will follow our mouths. Thirdly, familial. As those called to reconciliation within the church, we gather as an eclectic kingdom community of all ages, classes, colors, and cultures. We foster a communal identity marked by Christ-centered relationships, devoted love, and mutual ministry. Church is a family, not a production. Rather than being spectators, each member is empowered to commit their time, resources, and unique gifts to build up the body of Christ through sacrificial care, service, and generosity. Generosity. Fourthly, hospitable. As those called to reconciliation in our city, we gather in a culturally redemptive, as a culturally redemptive expression of Christianity in Bend, Oregon, and the surrounding areas. As we seek the peace and prosperity of our city, we strive to create inclusive and accepting environments of grace where our neighbors are known and loved, visitors are welcomed as guests of honor, and skeptics and sojourners find a safe place to belong even before they believe. We long for that to be true of us as a church. Missional. As those who are called to reconciliation in the world, we gather with the global Christian church, celebrating and learning from the movement of God throughout the nations. We proclaim a whole gospel that is good news for the whole person, for the whole world. We stand with, with God in Christ, alongside the poor, the oppressed, the immigrant, the orphan, and the widow. We are commissioned as ambassadors of Christ to participate in the mission of God through our daily lives and vocations. So we understand this thing is way bigger than just us. And finally, joyful. As those who are called to reconciliation with the rest of creation, we gather to add our voice to the jubilant song of praise that's sung by heaven and earth, rocks and trees, sparrows and stars. We celebrate the image of our creator and redeemer through creative beauty, artistic excellence, joyful celebration, and hopeful lament. We worship as grateful stewards and students and stewards of all that God has made, caring for the earth and everything in it as we eagerly await the renewal of all things. That's what we're doing here on Sundays. That's the goal and the hope is that when we come together as a community of Christ followers in Bend, but ultimately in Christ, that our gathering would be an embassy of the kingdom of heaven on earth. 
that we would be a signpost to the world of what it looks like when the lordship of Jesus is unopposed by Caesar or by any nation or by any political party or anything else that would tempt our allegiance and loyalty, we declare Jesus is Lord. And we exist as a colony of heaven on earth, not just when we gather here on Sundays, but also as we commission each other out into the world the other six days. And so my question for you is, in this season of life, how do you sense Jesus calling you to participate in this vision and mission? What role is he asking you to play to heavenize earth? In what forms are you going to follow him into this world, living as strangers and aliens in this place that is expecting the renewal of all things? It'll take different forms for all of us. And for some of us, it will be more focused on the church in areas of ministry, in areas of serving, in areas of leading, in areas of community and connection. And that's great. For others of us, this expression is going to be more outward through the relationships that we have in our neighborhood, through the work we do, the companies we start, the music we make, the art we create, the lives that we live will be our way of living as citizens of heaven on earth. And so I don't know what that question looks like for you, and we're certainly not going to try to mass produce a paradigm for discipleship. We're gonna trust that Jesus is personally discipling each of us and inviting us to follow him deeper into his life and deeper into this vision. So that's the first question. How is Jesus calling you to participate in this ministry of reconciliation in this season of your life? Or maybe which relationship, God's self, church, city, world, creation, is he calling you to dive deeper into? And then my final question is, are you really ready to proclaim Jesus as Lord? To confess that Christ is King? Where does your hope lie? Where is your allegiance? Whom are you trusting your life to? And will you lay your life in the hands of a crucified king and seek his king and kingdom above all? So we can have all kinds of fancy words and practices and mission statements, but ultimately... The kingdom of God is within us. And he's inviting each of us to pledge our allegiance to him, to confess him as Lord, and to follow him wherever he may lead us. And for some of you, you may have never done that before. Confessed Christ as king and received his life into your own, and today's a great day to do that. And for some, we just need to constantly come back, laying down our lives in confession, in repentance, in obedience, <clears throat> and to receive the grace of Jesus all over again. So we'll invite you to come to the table this morning. This is the table of heaven, a foretaste of the coming feast when heaven and earth are married and become one. We join around this table to remind ourselves 
that we live in the present as visitors of the future. Will you stand and pray with me? Lord Jesus Christ, we declare you as the king of the universe that you are making all things new. You're restoring all things back to yourself, and that includes us. And so we simply give you the praise, the worship, uh, the adoration, and the thanksgiving that is due you. You are the Lord who has saved us and is saving us and will save us, and there's no one else we can trust with our lives. Nowhere else will we find hope for the world. And so, Lord, we pray that this little community of your kingdom would be a robust expression of your, uh, your reality here on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we pray that our church could be an answer to your prayer, that things on earth would look like they are in heaven. We want to pursue that mission with you. We know it's not going to be easy. It's going to be messy, and it's going to be slow, and it's going to be real. But we know that you are with us in it all and that you are making all things new. And so we pledge our allegiance to you and you alone, Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, pray that you would find in us a hospitable bride. We welcome you. Meet us here today. In Jesus' name we pray.